The reading today is from Luke 2, 22 to 35. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that we would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this word for us today. We thank you for Simeon and, uh, and, and him listening to you prompting in his life. I thank you for this text, and I pray that uh, you would reveal yourself to us and your glory would be present with us this morning. In this I pray, amen. Now, it is true, my name is Heath, and I will be wearing my best sweater vest, doing my best Mr. Rogers presentation on Christmas, you know, Boxing Day, and uh, yeah, we'll have fun. So this... Maybe just not for kids as well, you know? Now, traditionally, I've been a bit of a grumpy pants at Christmas time. So in order to combat that, the last few years, I've been fascinated with hearing people's stories about their Christmas traditions, you know, whether it be family stuff, um, all the things that go around at Christmas. Now, whether you have good experiences with Christmas or bad experiences with, with, with Christmas, we all have traditions, don't we? Now, maybe with Christmas lights. I don't know, if you guys have ever go to get a chance to go to Capilano, like, like the lights are amazing. Um, I will, I tell you right now, I will not be singing Santa Baby because that is not part of my Christmas tradition. For those of you that were here last week, Daniel did a wonderful rendition of that that you will not hear from me. Some of us have nativity, you know, calendars that we open up. Some of us have Christmas dinners. Some of us, you know, Christmas Eve, you have like stockings by the fire. Well, one of those traditions that we had as a family when I was a kid revolved around a nativity scene. My mother loves nativity scenes, full stop, in caps, full accentuation on that. In fact, so much so, I knew as a kid, Christmas was coming because the nativity scenes were coming out. You heard that, right? That's plural. My mom collects nativity scenes. She even had a life-size one that every year would get, you know, you're dragging Joseph out, of the garage and you're dusting him off and she'd set it up on the front lawn so that everybody could see. Now my parents spent half the year in the East Kootenays and half the year in Arizona. So for kicks and giggles this week, I phoned my mom and I said, hey mom, how many nativity scenes do you have set up in the desert? And she's like, hmm, well only four Heath. Um, three of them are inside and we have an inflatable one outside just so everybody can see. I'm like, oh, my mom. You see, as a kid, there was one 
particular nativity scene that was special. It was precious. It was one of those ones that was collected over years, like back in the old school where you could you have a catalog and you can order stuff out of the catalog and they'd send you. So every year for like 10 years of my childhood, my mom got a new part of the nativity scene. It was super white, little delicate porcelain things. Now, nine-year-old Heath, you know where this is going, nine-year-old Heath loved to play Lego. And I always got in trouble for taking and adding the nativity, nativity scene pieces into whatever galactic, you know, battle I had with the spaceships that I made out of Lego. So well, one year in an intergalactic war, one of the evil spaceships accidentally murdered one of the shepherds. And poor Humpty, he could not be put back together again. Let's just say the offending party was duly punished by the intergalactic council and, and received probably a good flogging. Now, why do I tell you this story? The reason why is because my mom explained to me why nativity scenes were important to her. You see, for her, the shepherds, the angels, the wise men, whether they're porcelain or, you know, plasticine, they represented. It wasn't, it wasn't a toy. It wasn't even a decoration. But for my mother, the nativity scene was a declaration a declaration of the Son of God made flesh, King of Kings, right there in front of you. My mom's nativity scene was a declaration of the glory of God. You see, the nativity scene is a visual icon, a reminder of the witness of the advent of Jesus and mankind's response to it. You didn't think I figured that out with the Lego, huh? See, our text this morning highlights another witness to these things. Another reaction to Jesus. But interestingly enough, our character and our story today really doesn't appear in any nativity scenes, and he should be. You see, this morning I would like to properly orient Simeon at the heart of the nativity scene in front of Jesus, worshiping the Lord of all creation. So our, our outline this morning is simple. We'll follow roughly the line of the text. We're going to look at the presentation. We're going to look at the praise and we're going to look at the prophecy. So turn with me back to 22 to 24. I'd like to read this again. And when the time came for the purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, as much fun as it would be for me to nerd out on Mosaic law, you know, regarding, you know, pregnancy and discharge of bodily fluids and all that jazz, I'm, I'm going to spare you that detail, okay? Luke, the author of this text, wants us to know three things here. He wants us to know that Mary and Joseph were devout. They followed the regulations. They did everything that, that was required of them according to the law of Moses. This is very important. The second thing we also can see that Mary and Joseph were on the lower rungs of the socioeconomical kind of scenario that they lived in. A, a sacrifice of birds meant that they were poor because the regular sacrifice for this thing was a lamb. And the last thing that Luke wants us to know is the location. The location of these events were in Jerusalem and specifically the temple. The presence, the place where God himself dwells. This is an appropriate place for the announcement of the Messiah. And that's why Luke wants us to know. So he wants us to know that Mary and Joseph were poor. 
that they were in Jerusalem in the temple and doing what was required of them of the law. So let's continue the story in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit to the temple, and when the parents brought to the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, dot, dot, dot. Okay. They're at the regular place. The, the expected place to do these things was the temple. What happens next is unexpected. See, typically, you, this would be done by the priest. The blessing would, would happen, and you were, you were in an area, and there was a priest, you know, a, a morally upright person born into a certain line, and he would be the one that would bless this, the child and, and deal with the appropriate sacrifice. But no, we've got this rando guy, Simeon, seemingly led by the Lord, and he comes there, and he has none of the special credentials at all that the priests have. But rather, he is described in our text as devout and righteous of character. But also, he's directed by the Spirit of God. We see an interaction here, brought, you know, breaking into the normality of life. We see the Holy Spirit, and, and Simeon is motivated by the Spirit rather than moral piety. See, Luke, the author, makes it very clear that Simeon was filled with the Holy Spirit. Simeon had understanding given to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not, you know, he would see the Messiah before he died. And Simeon was motivated by action by the Holy Spirit. He went to the temple. This is significant, people. But that's not all that's going on here. You see, we specifically see in this text something really amazing. Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And you're like, okay, yeah, whatever. What does that mean? What does that mean? Like, how do I understand that? That sounds cool, but whatever. See, in the history of the Jewish people, there was a whole line of prophets and a, and a prophetic tradition that pointed to and was directed forward to a time when a Messiah would come, a Savior. He would come. And this Savior would be a suffering servant of God who would come to usher in a time of prosperity where Israel's enemies would be destroyed. One who would free people from slavery. One who would usher in a time of peace. One who would restore the glory of Israel. And as time passed, what initially started as seeds of promise, oh, became pregnant with expectation. The clearest of these prophets is probably Isaiah, and he's writing sometimes 700 years before these events. So turn with me for fun to Isaiah chapter 9, and we'll start at verse 6. And this is kind of, you gives you a glimpse of the expectation that they were waiting for. For unto us a child is born. Boy, these words sound familiar, don't they? For unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We need to understand that in the time of Simeon, there was a thick, tangible anticipation for the coming of the Messiah. 
an expectation that was bursting at the seams. Have you ever stuck a Mento in a Coke bottle? That is the level of expectation that was here at this time period in Jerusalem, and Simeon was there. This is what Simeon was waiting for. And directed by the Holy Spirit, he knew that he would see this Messiah in his lifetime. See, now that we can comprehend this and understand what's going on under the surface, we can now actually look at something that I'm super excited about and really nerdy about. We can actually look at this really interesting wordplay in the Greek that we kind of don't really see in our English translation. So, when we read in verse 25, bear with me to nerd out a little bit. In verse 25, we've got this expression, waiting for the consolation of Israel. In verse 28, we have this other phrase that says, Simeon took him up into his arms. What we don't see in English is that the root word for both of those actions is lechome, which means to receive. Now, to waiting for is pros lechome. So they add this bit on the ends, meaning, so in other words, you're towards receiving. So that's an anticipation, you're towards receiving, where when that phrase that take him in his arms, that's lechome, it's to receive. The author, Luke, here is making, I'm so excited about this, he's making a direct and obvious linguistic declaration here. See, he could have used other Greek words to say the same thing, but no, he made it link to say, look, what you're waiting for, this is what you're receiving. Simeon receives the consolation of Israel in his hands. Linguistically, Luke is telling us that when Simeon receives Jesus into his arms, he is receiving the promised Messiah, the one in whom he was waiting for the Christ, the Lord's Christ. Now, just to be clear, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's actually a title, and it's basically a Greek translation of the Messiah. Simeon was waiting for the Lord's Messiah, and he receives it. And when, when Simeon receives the Lord's Christ on the temple, on behalf of all of Israel, he's just an ordinary man. He's not a priest. Simeon receives the Messiah through faith. This exchange is very significant because it's not in the Holy of Holies. It's not where the priest would go. It's not where you'd expect the Messiah to be received. No, he is in the court of the Gentiles and the court of women, and it's a place, a common place. And this is a symbol to say this child is not just for the religious elite. It's not just for the people who have cash flow. It's for all of mankind. Simeon's act of receiving Jesus, it's, this should place him as a prominent feature in our nativity scene, people. When confronted with the expected Messiah that he was longing for, what was Simeon's response? Well, that brings us to our second point. Simeon's response is one of worship and one of praise. This is why we sing Christmas carols. Did you notice how many, how many references to a coming Messiah and fulfillment were in the songs that we sang this morning? This is why we sing Christmas carols, because when we receive the Messiah, we can do nothing but praise. So, verse 28 in our text. He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Simeon acknowledges to God that Jesus is truly the promised one. 
and he worships God, praising him for fulfilling something as small thing as a promise to him personally. His mission of watching, his mission of waiting for the Messiah, it's completed in Jesus. And he declares, he praises God and says, now I can rest in peace. I can die now. Simeon's words are as one theologian, he says that this is a doxology of confidence in God. In other words, what that means is it's a statement of worship and the confidence of the works of God and his plans of salvation. Like my mother, like us engaging with the nativity, Simeon's, Simeon's praise is an expression, a declaration of the resolute confidence that we have in God, despite difficult and present circumstances. Then in a statement of worship, Simeon echoes the prophet Isaiah that we read earlier in other parts of Isaiah, and Simeon declares that the nation of Israel is not the end, is not the terminus of salvation, but rather Israel is a conduit or a means of redemption for all of mankind. The redemption of all humanity is in the life and the work of the child that Simeon holds and receives in his arms. Jesus, he is born to Jewish parents. He lives his life in, in the context of Israel. He is presented at the temple, and he later will die, and he will later be raised to life in the context of Israel. But Simeon declares that, that he is not just the Messiah to vindicate Israel. No, not even to restore its fortunes or to free it from slavery, but he is God's Messiah with a greater mission and a purpose, a greater glory. He is to be the light of salvation to all mankind that will transcend ethnic boundaries. Simeon's declaration, in that we see a promise for all people, and that includes us a world away some 2,000 years later. In Simeon's praise here, we see that faith in Jesus is the only legitimate answer to Jewish expectation. But it doesn't end there. Faith in Jesus is one that has implications for all of mankind. And this, Christ said, he demands a response. Jesus has always demanded a response right from his birth. And that brings us to our third point, the prophecy of Simeon. Turn with me to verse 33 in our text. And when his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the rise and fall, rather, and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that, though, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed." Simeon blesses Mary and Joseph, and then he directly addresses Mary, and he says, this baby will divide Israel. In this celebratory interaction at the temple, in the context of promise and fulfillment, not all is happy, not all is good, and not all is as expected. When we read this, it's almost jarring. It's like you've got this amazing thing. You've got, you know, before this, you've got shepherds. You've got glory to God and the Most High. And then all of a sudden, you're like, by the way, he's going to actually cause division. Jesus here will force choices. And as a result, people will rise or fall. Jesus will be a catalyst, highlighting the contrast of faith and disbelief. When we read the rest of Luke, and we read the book of Acts, which is written by Luke as well, we see this play out. 
We see Jesus opposed in Jerusalem. We see him opposed in the countryside. Followers of Jesus are opposed in Israel, in Samaria. And the good news of Jesus is opposed in Galatia. It's opposed in Greece. And it's opposed all across the Roman Empire. In fact, at the book of Acts, right at the very end, word of this opposition has reached the emperor. And when Paul goes before the Roman emperor, he's crucified. Not really, he's not crucified. He's killed, rather, for his beliefs in Jesus. Jesus will be a catalyst highlighting the contrast of faith and disbelief. Jesus demands a response, Christ City. Salvation in Jesus has consequences. Receiving Jesus by faith is not kind of a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's not all good, even though it is amazing and hopeful and joyous. See, belief in Jesus has consequences, and some of you might be feeling the weight of those consequences right now. Some of you, there's division in your family because you call yourself a follower of Jesus. Others, there's hardship in your job because you are a follower of Jesus. Simeon addressed that right from here. It should be expected. Simeon tells us that we are to expect this opposition. And he also, also as an aside to Mary, understands how difficult that will be for her. It will pierce her soul. Like Simeon this morning, we have to grapple with this question. What do we do with Jesus? What do we do with the baby in the manger in our nativity scene? What have we placed at the center of our nativity scene? What do we do with Jesus? How do we respond to the Lord's Christ in the manger? At the beginning of the book of Acts, written by Luke, in chapter 2, the people of Jerusalem are confronted with this very same question. What do we do with Jesus? Recent events had them participate in the murder of Jesus at the hands of the Romans through crucifixion. Jesus unexpectedly has victory over death. He rises out of the tomb and he declares himself to his disciples and to the apostles and to many, many, many people. Then he ascends in, Luke, in Acts chapter 1. He ascends into heaven and say, hey, wait for me. I'm coming back and you will receive the Holy Spirit. So in, Luke, in Acts chapter 2, he receives, they receive the Spirit. So Peter gets up, he preaches a sermon to thousands of people, and he says, look, you, you guys, you killed the Messiah. You opposed him and you killed him. You killed Jesus, the Lord's Christ. So turn with me, Acts chapter 2, verse, starting at verse 32. Hear what Peter says himself. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. Now, the reaction. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive huh, the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. That's us, guys. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation. So that those who received, 
same word here that Luke is using, were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. By faith in Jesus, there is salvation, even for those who murdered him. Think about that. Christ City, we are all like the, Peter, like the people Peter addresses here. Selfishly, you know, instead of receiving the Christ child, we receive ourselves and we puff ourselves up. We are broken. We are enslaved. We may not have Roman overlords, but we have, we have things that we are imprisoned to. You and I, in and of our own selves, oppose Jesus every day. Might I even be as bold to say, ah, I count myself as one of the ones who murdered Jesus. You see, this Jesus, though, is not like a porcelain shepherd that can't be put together. But this Jesus is the Lord and Savior, and he was resurrected from the dead. This Jesus God raised up is exalted both Christ and Lord. There is salvation. There is freedom in his name, and it is by faith. Now, whether you call yourself a Christian or not this morning, how do you respond? How do you respond when confronted by this Jesus, both Lord and Christ? Does it cut you to the heart, or do you walk away? Will you receive him? Will you repent of your stuff, of your disbelief, or will you oppose him? Christ said he just as Simeon received the baby. Right now, Jesus still demands a response. So what does your nativity scene look like? What's at the center? Is it some sort of Lego structure built out of duty, piety, and moral superiority? Is it created in your image? Is it a patched up porcelain shepherd at the center? You know, a hard work of self-sufficiency? Or is it like a life-size inflatable Santa? Is it, you know, is it a Santa of disbelief surrounded by an elf on the shelf, merely a decoration? Unsure of why it's even there. If Jesus is not at the center of your nativity scene in this season, maybe you worship something else. See, Simeon's story is a beacon of hope for us in this time. Jesus is the center of our nativity scene. Will you repent of your disbelief? Will you receive Jesus like Simeon? Will you marvel at the salvation provided for all mankind? Will you worship him this morning? Let's pray. Lord, we humbly stand in awe of how you work through ordinary people to declare your glory. We thank you for the story of the few verses that is, encapsulates a life of faithfulness of Simeon. Lord, we thank you and we praise you and that your glory is magnified in his life. We thank you that he has is, is placed you at the center of his nativity scene, that he is right before you worshiping. So in this, we ask that you would, would cut us to the heart and that you would cause us to fall our knees and to worship you. In this we pray, amen. Hey everyone, this is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver, and I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. 
Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca.